Then it's time for clacks. I had a fucking bit of coke at the back of my throat. No! Right. Coca-Cola, I might add. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let's do a podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's November 2022 and you're probably all listening to this while huddled together inside a warm bank. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction. It's good to be back. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines used to buy on the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film until Elon Musk closes it down. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash doublereel, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 31, which has an overall sci-fi theme to all its features. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing in our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless day of tea repeats and watch a great film instead. Kicking off our science fiction movie theme, we're going way back to one of the seminal works of the French new wave, Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month features a lesser-known Sean Connery vehicle, Outland. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 31, David Fincher's so far unsuccessful attempt to adapt Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama. We close the first round of this episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the Keanu Reeves-led update to The Day the Earth Stood Still. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 31, we continue our science fiction theme by looking at how the futuristic predictions of sci-fi films have turned out. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Uh, some comments on the new releases. Uh, firstly, Park Chan-wook's decision to leave. Uh, Harry says, I got a bit lost watching this. I think I need a rewatch. Scott agrees it probably needs multiple viewings to fully understand. Mike, friend of the pod, says, I see the Telegraph uh, film critic Robbie Collin just gave Black Panther Wakanda Forever a one out of five stars review confirming my worst fears. I now live in hope he's talking bollocks. I don't hold out much hope in reality, given everything that's been going on in the other MCU films. Also, it means lots of below-the-line Telegraph commenters going on about go woke, go broke, yawn. Disney really are a bunch of wankers ruining the MCU and Star Wars. I'm not sure what to think about that. Robbie Collin can be a bit of a contrarian, gives glowing reviews for films that I think are absolute shite and vice versa. I know he doesn't personally go in for that anti-woke stuff, but yes, it's inevitable that Telegraph readers would go on like that. Uh, on our big conversation about sci-fi films predicting the future, Kevin says it takes serious observation towards the present and imagination towards the future to be good at that, not to mention luck. On our classic Alpha John says it's a strange film and the distant future dystopia looks a lot like 1960s Paris. On our one that got away rendezvous with Rama, Rona says, disappointing that the David Fincher project never happened, but very excited to hear that, spoiler alert, Denny Villeneuve is now signed on to make it. He's never let me down. Stephanie and Damien agree. 
On our hidden gem outland, George says, I rewatched this last month. Great movie. Paul says, one of my favorite sci-fi films, quite graphic and violent for a mainstream release and really tense and claustrophobic. Good special effects for the time. And on our remake, Hate Watch, Gary says, the original is one of my favorites. The remake, ugh. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2022. As always, the mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out. The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that has caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus the Government, is out now. So with that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's get into this month's episode. Our uh, theme this month is science fiction. So all of our feature films, the ones that, you know, like hidden gems, etc., are from the science fiction genre. Um, other than that, our, you know, our roundup and the you know, cubic entry are, you know, whatever, whatever is happening this month. Um, but the first thing we do uh, in our roundup is the news. Any news caught your eye, mate? Um, did someone die? I feel like someone died. Yeah, Leslie Phillips died. Oh, yeah, the age of about 98 or something. Yeah, I mean, hell of an innings. He's yeah. undoubtedly before your time. I mean, he's before my time, but he but he was he was in a couple of carry-on films and a couple of those like sort of British comedies of the 50s and 60s that used to get repeated on TV all the time when I was a kid. And then he became a bit of like a national treasure, and he, you know, he'd, he'd pop up, um, playing his kind of like sort of slightly comical smoothie um, character in like adverts and little spoofs and stuff. He's a very beloved actor. Um, he was t- typecast as one kind of like cad or, or, or raffish kind of guy, um, but he's probably a better actor than he got credit for, as he only occasionally got to show. But I'd, I'd be amazed if you'd seen him in anything, mate. Harry Potter. Oh, of course, yeah, he did Harry well, Potter, didn't he? He wasn't really in it, but he was the voice of the Sorting Hat. Oh, that's right. Yes, of course. Wow, that's just that just completely slipped my mind. Yeah, yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, he's before your time. Yeah, that, bullshit. That's yeah. That's, that's an atypical Leslie Phillips performance. Yeah. So that's uh, that's Leslie Phillips. Yeah, he passed away. Um, um, in other news, Martin Scorsese turned eighty recently, so tributes are pouring into him. Um, not major news. He turned eighty because it was his birthday, and he's still. He's I'm going to be going. controversial. I think Martin Scorsese's been fucking shite for years. <laughs> Sorry, it really pisses me off the fucking plaudits this cunt gets. Like he's not made a good film since <laughs> The Departed. Uh, I thought The Wolf of Wall Street was good. Uh, was it good for its direction, or was it just it was a great story? with a great performance and loads of great individual performances. Like, the direction of that film doesn't make me think, like, the you know, the musical choices or, like, the camera angles or all the wide shots, like, that, meh. And I, I know it's his birthday and happy birthday and all that, but I, I think we should do a podcast on really overrated directors and he would be fucking number one for me. I, yeah, per- personally, I think with Martin Scorsese, he's one of those people who's kind of plateaued and he's enjoying a late career. None, none of the films, but none of the films in his late career are my favourites among his films. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you look at fucking, like, Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and, like, 
films like that and like even Goodfellas to some extent because that was like halfway through his career I suppose yeah I, mean, I think Goodfellas is one of his best films um, you know I, I mean I would say this for Scorsese is that he had a a almost what's that almost 25 year peak and very few directors have that long a peak but he is past it now he's past his peak now you could say the same thing for Spielberg say the same thing for a number of directors but we, we, we can talk about overrated directors. I think there's there's definitely a big conversation in that one day in our future. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like Spielberg doesn't get the hype that Scorsese gets, particularly for Goodfellas. I don't think Goodfellas is, comes even remotely close to some of Spielberg's best work, in my opinion. Um, I just prefer Spielberg. It's not like I'm trying to like put the two in a competition, but yeah, I think Schindler's, yeah, I Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan and Jaws are all films that I think are much more cinematic masterpieces than Goodfellas. I think Goodfellas is a much more story-based film as opposed to... Yeah, we, we, prob- we probably need to kind of uh, get back on Goodfellas because I think from its, uh, it's it's worth a rewatch. I don't know when the last time you watched it was. Uh, probably about five years ago. Yeah, it might be worth you just re-watching it and kind of on, on second viewing, watching exactly how Scorsese makes this film because you are very much in the minority about how much like cinematic brilliance went into that film. Um, and I think it may be, a, may be worth rewatching. But hey, it's it's a, it's a definitely a conversation worth having over eight yeah, directors and how good I they really I are. I think for Scorsese's films, I feel like he's what he's better at than, say, a Spielberg is that the way he gets conversations going out of his characters. Yeah. Like the kind of dialogue, the dialogue is always you know on point in Scorsese films. I'll give him that, but I don't know. I've never understood the hype. Maybe it's because it's that thing where everyone's pure hyped him up, and now I've got there after the party because I was born fucking yeah, twenty years after I all mean, those good films went out. Yeah, I mean, I you know I sort of Goodfellas came out when I was like seventeen, so I was I was in the in a position to watch Goodfellas, but I had to go back and rediscover his earlier films when he was already, he'd already achieved God status. So, you know, he's mm. long, you know, he's been a, you know, it's like, I think a lot of people find that about, in, into music, find that about the Beatles. Do you know what I mean? And it's sometimes you have to kind of give it some time, let that kind of subside and then go back. But yeah, anyway, happy birthday, Martin Scorsese. Fucker, uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck uh, Any other news caught your eye? Um, I saw the Black Panther came out and got a bit of a mixed review. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've seen it, so we can talk about when you get to like new films we've watched. It has got, uh, it's got, um, it's 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 review aggregator on IMDb of what the critics said about it is decent, better than Thor: Love and Thunder, and the average IMDb rating is better than Thor: Love and Thunder, which is those ratings are always a bit skewed, but I think it's it's certainly done better critically than other Marvel films recently, um, and it's done quite well at the box office. I think. Mixed reviews, yeah, we can get we get we can get into why that might be the case, but yeah, it's I think it's I think it's open to better reviews than every Marvel film since Shang Chi, I would say. Okay, so it's it's kind of broke the duck a wee bit, I suppose. I I, I mean, I would say certainly it's you know I'll, I'll you know keep my powder dry, but um, certainly on you know what people generally are saying about it. I mean, obviously, what you know, there have been. For example, one of our listeners pointed out that Daily Telegraph gave it a one out of five, which I think is probably an outlier. There's like, for example, The Guardian gave it three out of five, which is like, hey, it's all right, not a problem, no classic. Uh, and other people have done, you know, similar. So it's, yeah. Um, I, I think what what you'd say is if it come if it if it had come out in the previous Marvel phase, people would have been going, oh, a bit of a drop. And this time, people are going, oh well, that, that it's a bit better than some of the other ones. You know what I mean? Mm. 
Okay. Um, linked news to that, this takes Disney's global box office to $3 billion for the year. Wow. For all of their films. Now, if Black Panther goes on to do as well as predicted, and Avatar 2 has a strong opening, because that is now, 20th century is now part of the Disney world, because they bought that studio. They're looking at maybe 4.5, maybe 5 billion for the year, because, I mean, Black Panther's just opened, right? So yeah. say they say they say they absolutely top end it and make five billion for the year. Um, do you know what they did in twenty nineteen? No, fourteen billion. Oh well, that's because they had fucking Endgame, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a high watermark because there's a bunch of top. There's not just Endgame. There's a bunch of top and MCU films kind of came out that year, culminating in Endgame. But if you would take a more normal year for twenty seventeen, now the Marvel did so no. No, just yeah. I mean, it's, it's some of uh, some of the, uh, the films. I've, I've deliberately not done um, twenty eighteen because that's got um, what should we call it? Uh, Infinity War in it, which was another huge one. But twenty seventeen was kind of a typical year, and they Disney made just under six billion. But right. remember, this year's figures include twentieth century now, as was twentieth century Fox, right? Um, and they weren't part of they weren't part of uh, um, Disney back then. So the real figure of a normal good year for Disney is between a nine and ten billion. It's like they're just buying figures now, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, the look that doesn't factor in the fact that COVID is still affecting some territories as far as cinema going is concerned, and it certainly doesn't factor in streaming because Disney five at least five major releases, not to mention lots of other smaller ones, but five major releases went straight to streaming uh, this year. Um, only and only one of them did any box office at all. Like Turning Red did about twenty million at the box office because it got a limited screening. Uh, otherwise, some pretty sizable films went straight to um, uh, to Disney Plus. So it is a different world. We don't. It feels like it feels like they declined a bit, but we don't know for sure because streaming is a different game. No, and you don't get numbers for that. You don't get viewing figures for it. Yeah. So. It it does it does feel like they are at least feeling a little bit of the effects of these MCU films not doing as well. I mean, Thor: Love and Thunder did seven hundred and fifty million. You'd be expecting a big Marvel film, especially after Ragnarok did so well, to be more like a billion. So let's say they're they're down a bit, and you have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. Um, okay. A new a new rather depressing news story. Uh, sad that I, this is the last one. It just feels like ending the news on a bit of a downer. Um, Warren Beatty is being sued for sexual misconduct towards a fourteen year old girl. Uh, fuck's sake. With, Here we go with, again. De- with depressing inevitability, this all took place in the 1970s when fucking hell, it was just like these fuckers seemed to just do whatever they wanted. Uh, only fair to mention, he denies all, all, all allegations. It is a lawsuit. There is, you know, it is a. Just it, got to wait, basically. Yeah, but it's kind of all, all, all the things he's been accused of are the kind of have this depressing ring of familiar, familiarity to them. So we're still. We're still cleaning up the messes of that generation a bit, aren't we? Yep. Um, but I guess we just have to wait and see what comes out on that. It's kind of, it is what it is. Um, any other any other news um, caught your eye, or is that, uh, is that is that us for the month on the news? Um, yeah, I don't think it, there's been much else. I think it's no, it's been a bit quiet. Relatively quiet, yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, so now we talk about new releases that are coming out. Um, we start from November the 25th, which is the day this uh, podcast will be, which is days ahead of where we are now and is when this podcast will be released. It's a film called She Said, which I've seen a trailer, and it looks like Spotlight for the Me Too generation. It's about a group of investigative journalists breaking the Harvey Weinstein story. 
Um, if it's good, it'll be very I good. I did see that. Yeah, I did see that. It's potentially a very... Com- yeah, I, I like a good kind of journalist crack case story. So if that's good, it's good. Um, Violent Night, an action comedy about a Santa Claus defending a wealthy businessman's mansion from mercenaries. Uh, I think he's a department store Santa and he ends up... Or maybe he's a real Santa. You can never tell really with these films. Um, Assassin Club comes out. Uh, that's Henry Golding from uh, Crazy Rich Asians and the recent uh, G.I. Joe spin-off. He plays, a oh, hit, yeah. he plays a hitman. He's turning a bit of an action guy. Um, he plays a hitman hired to kill seven people who were all assassins hired to kill him. Uh, that could be that could be anything from terrible to brilliant. Let's see what let's see what comes out. Yeah. Uh, December the 9th, Silent Twins. Uh, Black Panther's Letitia Wright um, in a British film about... Uh, it's a true-life drama about a set of twins in Wales who were who was seen as a bit strange and would only speak to each other. Uh, could, yeah, again, see what that is. The big release of this this period is Avatar 2, The Way of Water. comes out December the 16th. Um, and that's it until our next kind of release period. That, for me, seems like a bit of a quiet month. I don't know what you think, mate. Normally, I would have expected more films to come out this time of year. Yeah, that... That is odd, but I suppose the the way films are released now is kind of showed, uh, thrown everything off yeah. kilter. So I don't I don't actually know whether we're gonna have like these kind of big box office periods for Christmas and stuff like that. I don't know wh- why that's happened because it doesn't make sense to not release it at Christmas. But I don't know if folk are, you know, trying to save their pennies a little bit. Maybe they're maybe the film companies are waiting to release them next year when there's a bit more clarity with like the financial kind of crisis we find ourselves in. But yeah, I don't. That is a bit odd. I would have expected a few more films to have been released. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly. I mean, the big box office blockbusters. There's 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 usually one or two towards the end of the year, and I suppose Avatar fills that brief. But usually, you expect to see some of the films that want to hit award season come out now. They want to be fresh in the minds of voters, and they they come out in December. And there's not really many of them. Uh, but like you say, I think we're all. A... It's it's hard. This, this year and last year, it's been hard to say whether what's happening with the way films are released and how they perform is, is temporary or permanent. Do you know what I mean? Is it a temporary effect of what's going on or a permanent effect of what's been going on, you know? Yeah. But we shall see. Um, so, yep, those are, the, those are the new releases that sort of caught our eye. I hope, uh, I hope our listeners uh, heard something that they fancy going out to see. Um, then we turn to new films that we did actually watch uh, this month. Uh, did you watch anything new? I did. What did you go and see? Woo! I didn't go and see. Been a bit busy for that. But I watched that, is it called Help? On Netflix. Not The Help with Emma Stone, but Help with Jodie Comer and Stephen Graham about... Oh, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. The care homes. Yeah, yeah. I did I did hear about that. I heard that was very good, but I haven't... I, I, to be honest, I wasn't sure I was going to be emotionally kind of uh, capable of watching it, if you see yeah, what I mean. Yeah, it's, it's fucking grim. Um... I don't know if because I was working during COVID that I kind of knew how shit it was going to be, but I didn't even I even the film even showed me someone who was who didn't get, you know, to just stay at home during COVID that it was it was that bad. Like it's worse like the what was going on in those care homes. It was much, much worse than I could ever imagine. Um and it's jo- I, I... Jodie Comer is always brilliant and um Stephen Graham and what's his name played Professor Quirrell, Ian Hart. Oh yeah, that's just a who's who of who the best actors from the northwest of England, isn't it? Yeah, they're all scousers. Yeah, it's a it's a very very good film, but very sad. I would like to see you know these actors maybe take on like a nice film. I'm I do struggle with the scouse accent, not 
the understanding it, but tolerating it is a bit of a fucking, it's a bit of a fucking colonic for the years. But um, I read a very very good film, a very sad film. I um, read something. Uh, it was it was in the papers. It caught, it caught my eye. I think I might have been reading up. I was either reading up specifically about this, or they got the guy who wrote help to talk about allegations that had come out or revelations that had come out about the whole care home situation. And he said that his drama left out stuff that would have been a bit complicated to show legally. So actually, while that film made it seem worse than you ever realised, the, the truth that they wanted to show is even worse than that. Yeah, it, it's fucking appalling. Yeah, you do kind of get that impression from the film because it feels like they repeat the same point loads and loads of times. Yeah. Like they mentioned the fact that they didn't get PPE when the NHS did get PPE. Yeah. Which is a real horrible indication of how shit it must have been during all that. Because remember when the NHS couldn't get fucking PPE? Yeah, imagine, NHS, imagine being worse than that. Yeah. yeah, The NHS didn't get enough PPE and care homes were worse than that. That's... Yeah. Yeah, brings it fuck home, Boris it? Johnson, fuck Rishi Sunak, fuck all of those cunts so far into the fucking sea. What we'll do is we'll take them all into the fucking sea, right at the exact same time in The Dark Knight Rises where Batman flies his nuke out of Gotham Bay, and we'll just fucking drop the nuke on their fucking heads. Sorry, back <laughs> to films. Yeah, yeah, um, yep. Yeah. So, but I mean, I, I, to be honest, sometimes it's 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 it needs a drama. To, you know, we often talk about whether a film should be a documentary or anything else like that, and sometimes it needs a drama to really fire up the anger that a subject deserves or the emotion that a subject deserves, and I guess that's why. That's why they do it. Yeah. Um, so I watched something new. Uh, I went to the cinema to see um, Decision to Leave, directed by Park Chan-wook, uh, obviously of uh, Lady Vengeance fame, the first classic we ever did on this podcast, Old Boy, which is a, a film loved by both of us, an absolutely brutal uh, and brilliant film. Uh, the Handmaiden that we also did uh, on, on the podcast, uh, obviously one of the most highly regarded South Korean directors. Um, Decision to Leave is a kind of, it's a kind of film noir mystery, but it's also kind of a romance because while it's got a film noir plot about whether, about whether a, a woman really did kill her husband and the cop who's investigating that, it also concerns the fact that the cop and the woman uh, fall in love and how that okay. complicates the story. Um, as, as you can imagine with Park Chan-wook, it's very well made. Um, it's built around the central relationship of those two, two lead actors who are brilliant, really, really good. Um, I would say... Um, I, I, look, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was very good. It, it, it's got... Everything that Park Chan-wook does and does well is in there. He's got it's got surprises and plot twists, but it doesn't rely too heavily on them. It, I'm, it's a sort of film I imagine if I watched it again, I wouldn't go, "Oh well, I know what happens now. This is no longer interesting." The way the the way the characters and their relationship develops and the way their personalities mesh and everything, it really uh, it, it, it was really really well done. I thought it was very interesting, especially Park Chan-wook's not afraid of that sort of thing. He didn't go down like the body heat postman always rings twice route of you know, showing this like explicit sexual relationship between these two people. You know, when normally when it's a, like a, a all-consuming love affair, they usually show like sex scenes with a couple, and this this it doesn't, um, because he wanted to show their their all-consuming emotions for each other in another way, which I thought was an interesting choice. It does work. Um, it's not his best film. That's Old Boy, um, but it's still very good. I kind of expected this to be a bit more kind of strange and left field because that's what Park Chan Wook usually does. Um, but it ended up being 
conventional is the wrong word, but it, 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 it was a traditional film noir. It's like I said, I'm going to do a film noir. I'm not going to kind of completely blow up the genre. I fancy doing a proper film yeah. noir. Um, and yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Um, it, it's very much within that kind of mystery noir romance genre. So I think you probably need to like that. But it's a good movie, good movie. Do you see anything else new? I'm just having a little peruse of the Netflix. It's just a lot of TV shows. While, while you um, have a peruse of new films you've watched, a bit of an update. We wanted to watch Morris Men this month, um, which is the film that we discussed on a special episode with actor and producer Jamie Chambers. Um, that is a, it's a low-budget, very low-budget British film, which is being shopped around still for to be shown on video on demand, so it's not out yet. Um, so we can't tell you about it because it's not available, like widely available to see. When it is, we'll 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 talk about it just because we... You know, we got heavily into the film with Jamie. Um, that this, we can't talk about Morris Men yet. Um, did that give you enough time to talk about your your newest films? Um, I tried watching a couple of new films. Um, I tried to watch Hocus Pocus again to get me in the mood to watch Hocus Pocus too. Yeah, because I fondly remembered Hocus Pocus when I was five, but I couldn't. It was shit. Um, so I didn't even watch Hocus Pocus two. I never. Tried- I was never that. I never quite got the love for Hocus Pocus. I remember watching it and going. It's got good bits, but it's one of those films where the, I don't think it quite hangs together. The tone isn't quite right. But obviously, a lot, a lot of people kind of have well, this I was sat there fondness for it. With my partner, who'd never seen it, and I said, this seems like it would have been a film that you would have watched back in the day and had a soft spot for it. But she never saw it, so she saw it when she was you know 26, and now she thinks it's shit. Yeah. But I said, ask your pal. I bet she watched it and enjoyed it. And lo and behold, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you wa- if you watched it at the right age, you loved it. Yeah. yeah. Um, tried to watch Encanto again. Shit. Um, yeah. Um, the the help and um, the features is what I got got definitely got around to watching this month. I'm All just right. double checking if I watched anything on Amazon Prime, but I don't think I did. All right. Well, while you while you start with that, I will talk about the other kind of probably the biggest film I watched at the cinema. Lit, you know, very very hot off the presses because I, I went to see it last night, uh, sort of uh, late showing on an, on the the nearest IMAX screen to give it the best possible viewing. So I watched Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. Mm. So. I was approaching this like a lot of people who've been a bit disappointed with this latest MCU with a lot of nerves. I just thought, oh, it it was it was disappointing that Thor: Love and Thunder fucked up. You know, things like the Eternals and some of these other MCU films not being very good. It's not that much of a, you know, there's not much kind of emotional kind of connection to them for me. But the original Black Panther film was really good, and Chadwick Boseman was really iconic as uh, as T'Challa, and his death is really really sad and for this film to be bad would have been would have been really awful do you know what i mean it's like oh really if if marvel fuck this one if disney fuck this one up that really does ruin like uh probably the, the, the probably the finest legacy of, of their of their good era of mcu so I'm, I'm pleased to report that i wasn't disappointed by the film i'm pleased to report that it it, it is much much better than than thor love and thunder and on the whole pretty good so and and with the, it's mu- absolutely streets ahead of all the other MCU films that have come out in this phase, except maybe Shang Chi, which is nearly as good. This is this is a good movie. It's a good Black Panther film. Um, they have the, obviously a problem with this Black Panther film is that this is not the film they wanted to make. They did not want to be in this situation because the last thing on their minds was Chadwick Boseman not carrying on as Black Panther. Had he 
terrible bloody shame. Had he not passed away, this would have been, uh, maybe it would have been a similar villain, maybe it would have been a similar storyline in some ways, um, but it would have been more of T'Challa as, as Black Panther. So the people making this film were not in an ideal situation. Um, it's so in that sense, it's not the film they wanted to watch, and it's not it's not the film they wanted to make. It's not the film I wanted to watch. I did not want to watch a film where we're going, "Fuck, we haven't got Chadwick Boseman anymore." Do you know what I mean? But that's what we have. If we want to carry on Black Panther, we have to kind of deal with what we have. You know, um, it deals with with T'Challa's passing really well. It is very emotional. I don't imagine the actors had a hard time, like, portraying that sadness of having lost um, T'Challa slash Chadwick. Um, Obviously, one of the big questions on this is going to be how they bring Black Panther back. Now, to say how they do it would be a spoiler, so I'm not going to say. Uh, what I will say is, is that it, it took quite a long time for Black Panther to come back in the film. So there's some good stuff leading up to it, but it's all good stuff that doesn't have the main character of the film in it. Um, I'm not super keen on that. It's like, if you remember, we talked about like one of the seasons of, of Daredevil, where De Matt Murdock spends pretty much the whole season not wanting to be Daredevil. And it's like, fuck you, mate. I'll, I, I tuned in to watch Daredevil. Do you know what I mean? So they kind of, it kind of works for the film that they built up and they got Black Panther ready and built into the story in a, in a logical way that works for the story. But I still felt was there going, I didn't want to wait like over an hour to, to see Black Panther in the film. But again, they didn't want to be in that situation and neither did I. And I think they did a good job dealing with what the, the, the kind of very sad situation they were left with. The, um, the antagonist is, is Namor in the movie, who is kind of, He's sort of like, uh, he's like Aquaman for the Marvel Cinematic Universe because he, he's from a, an underwater world. But he's, um, he's, he's canon to Marvel. He's, he's, he's been there for years. But he's more of an antagonist. He's, kind of, he's almost like kind of Catwoman or, um, or Magneto in that he's, he's the enemy because he's, his, 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 um, while he has a lot in common and a lot of kind of shared thoughts and interests with Wakanda, his way of dealing with it is a lot more violent and brutal than and Wakanda is meant to be more principled than that. It's one of those kind of right way, wrong way storylines. But it's good. Um, like a lot of the other films recently, uh, the CGI is wonky in places, but mostly holds together. Um, Angela Bassett is terrific. Um, Letitia Wright is good. They bring in a, a new character um, and she's she's pretty decent. Uh, it's all good. I wasn't complete. I wasn't completely wowed by the big final battle, although I did feel I had the right level of kind of drama for the story. Um, right. It was, you know, they always had they always end these things in a big set piece, and it certainly went a better route than the Black Widow final act, which just was just fell apart. Um, but I would say if you if you put this action climax side by side with Shang Chi, I think the ending to Shang Chi is better. This is this is good, and there's a lot of drama because you're invested in the characters. Uh, and on the whole, it's good. It's it's not what I would have done with the story, um, but I think it's what they did is, is is logical and fair, and it's decent. I came out of it very relieved that I went. You know, I I felt something about uh, Chadwick Boseman leaving or, or passing away, and I I thought the story was good and built well, um, but it, it it's not quite. If, if 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 nothing had happened to make this film necessary, and it was only this good, you'd have gone. Oh, that's a come down from Black Panther one. But considering the tragedy that they had to deal with, I thought they'd done pretty well with it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and it's 
it doesn't save this phase of the MCU, but thank God this didn't go down in flames with the rest of this phase. Do you know what I mean? So I thought it was decent, and I think it's worth watching. I think it's worth watching on the big screen as well. Okay, well, that's good to see that they're kind of back on form. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's uh, whether they're back on form, it just depends because I think this is a case of Ryan Coogler and all the people involved in this film going, "We're not going to fuck up Black Panther. Black Panther is too important to fuck up." Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think they threw everything at making this decent and work, and fair enough, fair play. Um, so we'll see, see if the rest of the MCU gets any better. Did that give you time to see any of your other uh, films that you watched this month? I don't think there were any. Yeah, uh, yeah, I haven't seen anything, so that's a nice point to end on. So yeah, I mean that that sort of covers resolutions for you as well, doesn't it? Because your resolutions were to watch more films, but I mean you watched a couple of new ones. You know, you you did have some. You know, you did get stuck in. I know you've been finding that difficult lately with everything that's going on. So I think you met your resolution to watch. You know, watch more films. Pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah. Here we go. So my resolution uh, is to continue and bring to its uh, looming conclusion. 2022 Kubrick Odyssey, in which I watch all of Stanley Kubrick's films in order. Uh, month by month, we're going through his filmography. So we started with his very early 50s stuff, and we're closing in as we get at the end of the year with his sort of final films. Uh, and for November, we are talking about Full Metal Jacket, which is Stanley Kubrick's 1987 uh, Vietnam film. Um, he is, um, as a Another another listener, Graham, who I uh, didn't uh, honestly the, the, his uh, his message came in late last night, and I I didn't put it on the list. I just want to mention it now. He did say, uh, really good film, but weird that it was filmed in the London Docklands. And I think that's the story of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket is that Stanley Kubrick set out to make a film about the Vietnam War, which, like all of the films he's done since uh, I think Lolita, so for the last almost forty years of his career. He's not going to leave the UK. And that kind of defines the film. We'll go into the film, you know, and, and go through it. But how this film eventually ends up is heavily, heavily influenced by the fact that he chose to make a movie um, set in the Vietnam War, which is in Southeast Asia, and film it exclusively, with, with, the, with the exception of some, ex, you know, second unit, you know, shots of Virginia for the training, for the training camp. Uh, apart from that, this is all made in London, which is really weird. Um, and, and I think that's that, that's going to come up when I talk about this film. You've seen the Full Metal Jacket, mate, of course? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I love it. Yeah. Well, no, I love the first hour and 20 minutes. I think the last hour or so is a bit, a bit weak. But yeah, the, the boot camp bit is some of the best cinema you will ever see. That, that, and that, again, that is the story. Um, so, so to give it a bit of a, a background... Uh, Full Metal Jacket came out in 1987. There was a seven-year gap for Kubrick between that and his previous film, The Shining. This is the other story of Kubrick's career that he started to take longer and longer to make his films. Uh, he he was he was making a film every three or four years uh, until Barry Lyndon, uh, where then he had a five-year gap to The Shining and a seven-year gap to uh, Full Metal Jacket and then a 12-year gap to next month's film, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, it's based on a novel by a guy called Gustav Hasford, who was a former Vietnam War correspondent. Uh, who is very similar to the central character of the film Joker. He was uh, drafted in, uh, or, or you know, like a lot of young guys, what was you know, joined the military in the 60s. He was in the Marines and, and became a combat correspondent. Uh, that was his chosen duty. It's also combined with the writings of a bloke called Michael Hare, who was an actual uh, war correspondent as well, who, who wrote extensively about the Vietnam War. His book Dispatches is regarded as one of the best ever books about war from the... the, the um, the, the point of view of a correspondent and influenced the filming of Apocalypse Now. Vietnam was huge back then. 
I don't know how much of a thing Vietnam films are for you, mate. Um, but back then in the 80s, you had Platoon, the Hamburger Hill, the Deer Hunter and Apocalypse now came out in the late 70s and were kind of almost like required viewing when I was a kid. Yeah. Vietnam, very, Vietnam was very much a thing. Amer- America was looking back on Vietnam back then. It was a cultural phenomenon. Um, I don't know what the Vietnam War means to you. I, I, don't th- I, I mean, obviously, you, you've studied your history, so you know about the war, but it's not... Um, I don't think it's as, as much culturally a thing for you, is it? You know, like... No, I know it was an absolute mess, and it was part of, you know, obviously, America's Cold War paranoia, and it just ended up being an absolute embarrassment for them. Um, yeah, but I mean, if, if you look at, like, Tropic Thunder, which is like a spoof of the whole Vietnam War phenomenon, one of the things about that is that every big actor would consider doing a Vietnam film, and every big director would consider making one. For a period of time in the 70s, 80s, Vietnam was like, it was like, I'll do my gangster film, and then I'll do my um, uh, sort of drama film, and then I'm going to do my Vietnam film. Couple and Scorsese never done, but it was like we're going to do one. The film was a big hit, um, so it was very successful, um, and it's full of iconic scenes. But as you say, most of those iconic scenes are the things it's best remembered for is the first half, basic training, which is utterly gripping stuff. I think it's some of the best stuff Kubrick's ever put on screen. I think it is the. There have been several films about training men for war, and I think this is the best one. This is the best basic training story that's ever been filmed. It's if fucking incredible. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you don't even want to say too much about it because you don't want to spoil it for anyone who's not seen it, but I imagine everyone listening has seen it and knows how good it is. Yeah, yeah. But j- j- just suffice to say, Kubrick wanted to make this as realistic as possible. I mean, it revolves especially around the central, three central characters. There's uh, uh, there's Joker, played by Math- Matthew Modine. There's Pyle. These are like the recruits that are being trained. There's Pyle, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And Arliss Howard, who plays the other one, is it Cowboy? Yeah, Cowboy. Who's the other one? Who you know? Who um, who is one of the other sort of the other three main characters? Although there's there's a room full of recruits. Those are the three main characters, and they're being trained by a drill instructor played by Arnie Ermy, who was a drill instructor in real life, and that was one of those things. Stanley Kubrick was you know desperate for a bit of um, re- realism. What he wanted to do is he wanted to do a really realistic portrayal of, of basic training, um, and then tell a very dark story around that. Now that dark story reflects what's in the book. But it's also very much what Kubrick wanted to show this. I mean, if you contrast this basic training story with, say, an officer and a gentleman, which is all, you know, the the drill instructor is uh, basically the hero of the story in a lot of ways. Uh, This is a very different interpretation of that and much darker. Um, But Kubrick wanted it to be utterly realistic. He was was, was offering this part to to actors to play a drill, uh, drill instructor. Ed Harris was originally offered the part, but turned it down, interestingly. He was I think Ed Harris would have been good, but I think that what happened with this was obviously they wanted him to they wanted Arlie Army to consult, and then Ed Harris, like you said, was offered it. But I don't think anyone could have no with all the advice in the world could have. There's there's two versions of the story. One version, and Arlie Army is a bit of an unreliable narrator. He gives a lot of interviews where he says this or that happened, and then everyone else who was involved with him says, "No, that's bollocks." But either it was part of his dealings with Kubrick, where Kubrick realised, wow, this guy really, this this is what a drill instructor's like. Do you know what I mean? It was either that and or the fact that Ali Ermi was, he did the, you know, they always do boot camp for the actors. And Ali yeah. Ermi was the drill instructor for the boot camp. And they were filming it because Kubrick films everything. And when Kubrick saw the footage, he went, that's my drill instructor. Why, why get someone to try and do that? Do you know what I mean? I'd much rather just get him to do it and point a camera at him. So that's why he's the... He's the uh, he's the guy, and he absolutely makes it. I mean, he's you know the drill instructor. I mean, I I 
this film came out when I was a teenager. Sports teams that I was in, we would when we had to go and do our two or three laps of the pitch at the start of training, we'd be singing drill instructor songs because we'd seen this film. Do you know what I mean? It was it it wasn't just kind of you know it, it totally crossed over. People who weren't necessarily that into films watch this, watch a drill instructor had various quotes. He totally make makes that story, um, but obviously it's very very dark. And then we. Um, but then we go into the, the second half. And as you say, the second half does not match up to the first. And you had an idea, and we talked about this before, mate, to maybe make it just about basic training. Yeah, I don't think the film needs to be, like, Full Metal Jacket needed to be as long as it was. I think the problem that they kind of fell into is that they had about an hour, just over an hour of the boot camp stuff, and they thought, well, we can't just leave it at an hour. But I do, I do think that the urban battle sequences are very very weak yeah, they are just they don't work very well I, you know you've got I, I, appreciate I, yeah. the fact I tend to you, I tend to agree apart from the very end I think the last kind of 10 minutes is fucking superb but yeah. a lot of the Vietnam stuff is is like you say it is it's not not only weaker than the first half of the film but a lot weaker than other Vietnam films that came out at the time I, um, I, I do very much agree so, so would you would you have made it just about the basic training would you, would you have expanded that story yeah, because I do, I do feel like the ending of the boot camp sequence is quite fucking shocking. Um, because spoiler alert, Private Pyle absolutely loses his mind. Basic training breaks him. He's picked on by all the army for being a fat slob, and it's constant harassment every day, um, for the entire you know the entire day. He doesn't get a moment just to himself where he isn't being harassed by his drill sergeant, and he snaps, shoots his drill sergeant with um, a rifle, and then turns the gun on himself. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, at that point you're like, "Holy fuck!" And you could very, end it's the very, film. Very, it's very, very hard for the rest of the film to live up to that climax, isn't it? And you could end the film there. You could talk. You could look and maybe, maybe don't have um, Private Joker as the um, the protagonist. Maybe try and focus on Private Pilot as the kind of main character and see how he starts as this kind of chubby uh, guy going into boot camp who's trying to serve his country, and it just ends up fucking breaking him to the point of yeah. you know, psychosis. Um, yeah, I, I mean, think that'd be a more interesting film, but obviously that's yeah, not what we got. Yeah, I mean, obviously you'd have to expand it a little bit. You'd, you'd actually have to have more, more, you know, of of the basic training because the film needs to be at least kind of ninety minutes, and the 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 um the basic training sequence is only an hour long. I was thinking maybe they could have a war exercise that goes horribly wrong. Yeah, you could still have the final ending, but you could have more happening, sort of building up, and then you could have sort of satirized the combat by you know showing them a war exercise in the local swampland. And if it's if it's them against each other, you can like kind of that can be a metaphor for essentially America was at war with itself in Vietnam. Sounds a bit wanky, but you know that's the sort of thing. The, pro- the problem the problem they had that right is that the book tells the story of the basic training experiences of the main character and also then everything he um, he learned and saw in the war as a correspondent, seeing various he sees the Tet Offensive, he sees Khaesan, he sees Hue. He sees various things, and as as the combat correspondent, you, you get the story of the war through the eyes of the combat correspondent, how it's going, how that affects the soldiers, how America's war sort of gets literally stuck in the mud, and the the book is one of the you know the, the two books that it's drawn from have all of this amazing stuff about what the war was like, and I guess you could just do the um, the the. The, the 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 basic training stuff, but whoever picked up that book to make a film of it would want to put all the other stuff in as well. It's just really really hard for them to let it go. Yeah. I, I think you see the the 
I think the reason that the second half is is weaker is simply because it was too limiting to try and film it all in England. It's a brilliant technical achievement to make the London Docklands look at all like Vietnam. Of course, yeah. But it's massively dramatically limiting. I mean, you know, Francis Ford Coppola went to the Philippines. Oliver Stone went to Thailand to make Apocalypse Now and uh, and Platoon. And Platoon's a really good example. Platoon is not that historically accurate in terms of the events of the film, because in one one year like tour of like conscripted soldiers they kind of see everything that happened in the war and no no 12 month period for like one platoon of soldiers would ever be that eventful but but stone went oh if i do it like this it tells you everything that went on in the war but he had to go fucking somewhere in asia to make it look right yeah and what you what you miss is that a, a war correspondent jumps on a helicopter and goes to all parts of vietnam and shows you what's going on and that was a perspective that you wouldn't get in other films. You know, Private Joker can then go to, he can go to Huey, he can go to Kaysan, he can, but he can go to the jungle, he can go to these other settings. And with that kind of voiceover, that narrative of what's going on in the war, he can give you what Kubrick was trying for, which was, this is what the war was like. Do you know what mm. I mean? But Kubrick's basically got about three sets that he can use because he's doing it in the London Docklands. For me, it's a bit like when uh, Nolan set some limits on himself like no cgi no this no that yeah for, for dunkirk it's like well fine but you've limited yourself about stuff that really the audience needs to see to get what you're trying to say and i i think i think we'd be talking about the second half with, with a lot more enthusiasm if coppola wasn't afraid of flying sorry if kubrick wasn't afraid of flying and and had gone and shot in fucking guam or something so that he could have done more of the story and actually done more combat intensity because when he when he when he really lets go in the the sniper battle at the end and and they're being shot that's good because there's not many vietnam films that show like urban urban warfare secondly it's really really brilliantly shot but a lot of it is like all right we can only film from this angle right because we're in fucking beckton right we're using an old gas works this is all we can fucking do and it's like if they could just have people jumping out of a helicopter and running into a jungle to actually show you what war was actually like, I think the second half sequences would have been a lot better. Um, you still have the the dramatic problem of the climax of the film is halfway through. So maybe you do it in some sort of flashback. Do you know what I mean? Maybe you tell the stories in parallel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant film followed by a kind of, you know, not nearly as good. Um, I tend to agree with you, mate. The, the, the Vietnam sequences are not as good. If you want to see what the, you know, the best Vietnam War sequences, uh, you're still looking at of the actual combat. You're still looking at Platoon and Apocalypse now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, very good. It was a, it was an iconic film at the time, and it's just that for that that's w- worth watching just for that first hour, isn't it? Oh, totally. the The first hour is phenomenal. It's ridiculously good. Yeah, really, really good. So. So as always, I do an impromptu top 10 in connection with my uh, my Cuba Country film in which I find 10, 10 films or, or, or 10, 10 things from cinema that inspired me to do with this film. And the thing that inspired me about this film or the, the, one of the big stories of this film is that there was this huge impact made by someone who was a non-professional actor who'd been brought in to make the movie. Uh, so my impromptu top 10 in honour of that is the impromptu top 10 performances by non-professional or debut actors. Um, people who weren't professional actors or weren't kind of the, the movie star but somehow ended up making the film. Uh, and that includes in no particular order Barkhad Abdi and Captain Phillips. Uh, some of these people went on to be professional actors but this is when they were just brought in. Uh, Hang S. Noor uh, in The Killing Fields. Abraham Atta in Beasts of No Nation. Uh, Stu Rutherford in What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, Darlene Cates in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. 
Charlotte Copley in District 9. Believe it or not, he wasn't a professional actor before he did that movie. Uh, Roddy Piper in They Live. Pretty much everyone in City of God. Pretty much everyone in Gomorrah. And Alex Hibbert in Moonlight. So that's my prompt top 10, and that's the Cuba country for this month. Uh, we reach our climax. We reach the end of this project uh, in December next month when we do Kubrick's final film, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, so that's our roundup. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films. I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from Le Carre drama The Constant Gardener to gothic melodrama Eve's Bayou. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials. For this month's science fiction theme uh, for the features, we're going back to 1965 and an influential film from the French New Wave about a strange futuristic world that nonetheless looks exactly like contemporary Paris. The classics and recommended feature for episode 31 is Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville. So, um... I tend to approach Jean-Luc Godard films with a bit of caution because he was, he's a pioneering filmmaker. He's got like, you know, like when he did his obituary, they kind of have a list of kind of his most famous films. And there are films of his you can just watch and go, they're brilliant. But he's also very experimental, a bit obscure. So some of the films of his you would watch, you would go, oh, I don't really know what this is all about. Um, so I, going in to see, watch this one, went, oh, I'm, I'm honestly not sure what I'm going to get here. What, what was your... I mean, when you when you did some reading up or, or, or looking into this film before you actually went to see it, what 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 came across to you about what this was going to be about and, and Godard and, and everything else? It is a bit jarring, isn't it? The whole it's meant to be a dystopian future, but it's it's Paris. Yeah. So I did think this film is going to have to work very hard to do some convincing to you know really sell this plot of you know dystopia. Um. But yeah, when you. When you're presented with that, okay, there's not going to be all these futuristic sets and there's not going to be aliens and there's not going to be props and there's not going to be these things. You really do have to pay attention to the story that Godard's trying to sell. Yeah. Um, and I think it does it okay. I I think, obviously, <laughs> I think it's a bit mental to try and do a film like this in the 60s when you're not going to have these sets. Yeah. And the, the ability to kind of display that dystopia... And it does it okay, given that. Yeah, I mean, the two big takeaways to me in this film is one, that Jean-Luc Godard might have been talking about a science fiction film in the kind of plot of the movie, but that's not what it's about for Jean-Luc Godard. He's trying to say a bunch of other stuff that hasn't really got anything to do with sci-fi, and he's just chosen a sci-fi storyline to do it. And the other thing about this film is that... um, it, I think it's an example of a very, very influential film, and you can see why a whole load of other filmmakers have gone, oh, I've got to make my movies more like Jean-Luc Godard's, and a whole generation of people have, have, have learned to make films from watching his films. That doesn't always translate into film that you can just sit down and watch. Do you know what I mean? So Jean-Luc, that, you know, Jean-Luc Godard is so influential that um, uh, Quentin Tarantino's, certainly his first production company, I don't know if it's still, it still is his production company, is called Band Apart. 
which is based on Bandapar, which is a, another Goddard film. Um, you know, Hitchcock tried to change his entire kind of you know filming style because he was watching the New Wave and Goddard and Truffaut and people like that. Some of the best films of the seventies are made by people like Scorsese, Coppola. We talked about Walter Hill's um, The Driver, and they all watched French New Wave and went, "Oh wow, what have they done there? I want to do that in my movies." And I think you have to acknowledge that a lot of those great films would not exist without Godard's films. Some of those Godard films are like, you watch them and you go, I actually like the films that are influenced by this guy better than I like films by this guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Having said all that, let's get into it. The storyline is that a central character, Lemmy Caution, has come from what are known as the Outer Planets to Alphaville, which is a sort of totalitarian dystopia. He is supposedly just a visitor or reporter kind of come to kind of cover events taking place in Alphaville at the moment as part of the kind of the uneasy diplomatic relationship between Alphaville and the Outer Planets. He is, in fact, a spy for the Outer Planets who is trying to undermine the uh, oppressive regime of Alphaville and uh, Alpha One, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the sentient computer which controls everyone's lives. Uh, while he is in Alphaville, he meets and falls in love with uh, a central, uh, you know, the, the female central character, and tries to free her from the grip of the uh, of uh, of Alpha One. And while he's there, you observe Alphaville and the different people who he tries to get assistance from in tackling and defeating the oppressive enemy. It's got shades of 1984. It's got shades of like the 19, a lot of classic 1960s tropes in the sense that. Technology and the existence of computers heralds this new era where you're not allowed to show emotion. That was a very, very familiar, like, 60s storyline. It dragged somewhat into the 70s. It seems a bit dated now, whereas we see, we've seen how technology changes things, and we've seen technology manipulate emotion rather than deaden it. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's, it's weird for us to watch a film almost 60 years later saying what technology does to people, where we've lived through the era where we actually know what technology does to people. Do you know what I mean? And the... The background to this Lemmy Caution character, I don't know if you picked up on this, mate, but that's actually a character from other stories that he's, he's transplanted into this film. Right, okay. So Lemmy Caution was a a like an FBI agent-type film noir hero character from books written by a British guy. So it's, it's this weird background. It's a British guy decided to write stories about an American hero because America always seems more exciting than Britain. I'm going to write a story about Americans, right? They're quite popular around the world, not as popular in America and Britain, and hugely popular in France. This guy wrote books that he's basically the Philip, the the Raymond Chandler or the or whatever, the kind of uh, famous author in France who really loved these books and made a lot of films about the Lemmy Caution character, starring Eddie Constantine, the actor who Jean Luc Godard then gets to be in this film. So Jean Luc Godard gets gets the rights to um, a character who was in a lot of fifties film noir films and uses him and transplants him into this supposedly futuristic setting, um, which is strange. Um, I don't know if you picked up on that, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on why he might do that. Um, I don't know. if the, I think he's trying to make the film as accurate as he wants it to, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So he's trying to he secure the rights and then try and, you know, the rights to the character that, the actor, you know, that was sorry. I'm making an absolute chopper message. You get what I'm trying to say, though. Yeah, he's he's trying to he's trying to ground it for his viewers or something, isn't he? Yeah, he's trying to make it as not relatable. Is that the word? Yeah, yeah, like, I know, yeah, I know what you mean. I think it's again. I, I there's, there's so many essays about what this film is about, and what people are trying to say, but I think it's an element of he wanted to 
I think he was trying to give his audience like a character that they're familiar with and a genre of film that they're familiar with, like 50s film art, and then take it and contrast it to this kind of um, heartless futuristic society that he's making a film about. Um, so that's why he uses that character. It was, it was a thing, though. In, in, in one of his most, most famous films, Breathless, the central character is uh, absolutely obsessed with um, Humphrey Bogart. So Goddard loved that film noir era. So I think he wanted to say, I'm going to do a film about, about futuristic world, but I want to imagine, like a, a, a like you say, relatable, a character from a, a recognisable today world and imagine him being faced with this, you know, strange dystopia. Um, I mean, what did you think of the sci-fi elements of the story? Did it hang together for you? I mean, it is the 1960s. Yeah. Um, but... I actually, I kind of enjoyed the fact more the way that they tried to sell the story without all of the futuristic yeah it's an set pieces choice, or whatever. Isn't it? that, yeah. If they were to make this film now, my fucking god, it would be absolutely washed with CGI. Yeah, so I I actually thought that was interesting on how they kind of set themselves this sort of challenge. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, see for me. I think the reason this film has endured is because it's a really good example of Goddard's technique. And a lot of filmmakers have watched this film and, and, and Abu Dasufla and Abandapar and his, 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 you know, uh, uh, what's his, the other one, the Buddha uh, Lero, I think is, is one of them, what they're called. And it's, he, he pioneered jump cuts, natural lighting, long takes, people talking direct to camera, freeze frames, on location shooting. And all of these things are, um, staples now i mean he, he changed the face of filmmaking he got rid of the whole kind of much more kind of theatrical style the way kind of as brilliant as they are the way hitchcock's films looked in in the 50s and he got rid of the whole idea of like sitting in it in, in what looks like a car and having a back projection against it if you want a car it's got to be driving on a real road it wants to give you that kind of realistic setting and that, and that's what works for me i found i found I think, like you, I I I I thought it was interesting that he he portrayed a, a world without it being, um, you know, massively futuristic. And and there are films that I do like. I mean, it, you know, when we did Clockwork Orange, that's not set far in the future, is it? And he, and and Kubrick hasn't gone to too much trouble. You know, he he used a lot of seventies fucking tower block settings for that film because he wasn't trying to set it so far in the future. So it can work in a sci-fi film. Don't distract your audience with, oh wow, what an impressive set. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I I get it. I did find it weird at times because they were talking for a bit about other galaxies that the outer planets could be like really really far away and that and, the, and that this film could be really 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 far in the future. And that took me out of the film at times because I just thought if you're if you're going to actually say out loud in the film that the outer planets and New York and Earth are like a, a galaxy away and that this is like possibly hundreds of years in the future. It, it, I found it jarring that then they're walking along driving like those traditional 60s Citroen cars. Do you know what I mean? And all the uniforms are like 60s uniforms. Do, do you know what I mean? I, I did find it weird at times. Yeah. I wonder if maybe I'd have liked it better if, if instead of instead of saying it's far in the future and the outer planets are far away, just make it some sort of alternative reality. Do you know what I mean? Say it's um, it's sometime in the future, but it it's it's still France. They've just started to call it Alphaville. A regime has taken over and you can't call it France anymore. It's Alphaville. You know, the way America is Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because at some point he's going, he drives a Ford Galaxy and then he drives that Ford Galaxy home to the outer planets. So and I'm like, this is, 
it's taken me out of the movie and distracted me from the stuff I like about the movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. It, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard one to do because I think Jean-Luc Godard was just so keen to make the story, but Jean-Luc Godard obviously couldn't wait till 2022 to make it with the CGI that maybe could have made the film a little bit less France yeah. in the 1960s kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, there are people that say that even if Godard had the money and the resources to do loads of special effects, he wouldn't use them because he wasn't interested in making that kind of movie. Um, so it's like, yep. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, um, you know, the execution scenes in the swimming pool. Do you remember yes, those? Yes, yes. Sorry. And, and I think th- th- those are, they're quite shocking and they are actually influenced by some real events that he was trying to portray there. But in order to kind of make it seem more kind of dreamy and weird, he's got women with swimming caps on kind of diving into the water in formation to finish off the villain or to finish off whoever they've executed. Yeah. And it, it looked to me like they'd introduced a synchronized swimming round to the Hunger Games. It was like that. I thought some of it didn't quite come off. But I think this is because I'm, I'm a sci fi fan. And, and the way I look at it is if you do a sci fi film with a sci fi setting, try a bit harder. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the thing is, what God I was trying to make a film more about contemporary France than anything else. I don't know if you read around the um, the themes and what God I was actually writing about. Um. A little bit, probably not as much as you. So, I mean, he was he was writing this in the early to mid-60s, and what had happened there is that France had... The regime of France was holding everybody back at the time. Culturally, they were 20 years behind where they should be. That's what the whole French New Wave was about. It's about dragging France into, the, in the, into a more modern era. The government at the time, Charles de Gaulle, was a war hero in the 40s, and now he was just this, seen as this kind of... He's holding everything back. They'd gone to war with Algeria. They, they tried to fight to hold on to colonies in, um, in Indochina, which became the Vietnam War. It, it was the, the, the new generation of French were looking at this old France and going, we've got to get rid of this. This is, this is horrible. And there was also a, um, that's the political climate at the time. Also, there was this organization called Le, uh, Rediffusion, Rediffusion Nationale or something like that it's called. But basically, it controlled everything that got shown on television one sort of government organization basically it wasn't just a case of you know they can ban something they don't like they actually controlled and determined what people would watch on television at the time and alphaville and alpha one the 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 computer all of that it's all it's his way of interpreting that it's the censorship of his films it's the political and cultural climate which he felt really stifling and worked against people like him who were trying to do something real and he was trying to make a film about that. And I, I think that's very interesting. And I think what I liked about this film was that, again, you get to see how Goddard makes films. And I did find a lot of the... I, 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 as I was going through it, just like, ignore, the, ignore the futuristic trappings that are distracting you and focus on the film. And I did enjoy that. I did enjoy that kind of... that oppressive atmosphere and the one guy fighting against it. I did enjoy that. And I did enjoy kind of the mood and the style of the film. Um... But I did, I did feel like I was studying it more than watching it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. No, I, I get on board with that. It's, um, yeah, it, it, yeah it's, it, it is interesting. It, it, it's, it's good to watch. I, 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 there, there were things in there I saw that, you know, that, that, that could have been good. I mean, did, did you, you know, the, the voice of Alpha One, the computer, I don't know if you, if you read the background to what that was all about? Uh, no, I didn't, sorry. What it was was to, to get that kind of... Um, lifeless or soulless kind of voice he actually hired someone who'd, who'd had their voice box removed because of cancer oh my god and they were talking into that throat microphone thing 
Oh, God. <laughs> he basically said he wanted to use that sound for the computer because he didn't want it to sound like a human. It didn't want to sound like it had a per- personality. Um, yeah, so it, it it's a really interesting film. That there were people who absolutely adore this film. I mean, it was obviously... We will never understand what its cultural impact was at the time because at the time, I think it became a celebrated film by everyone in France who wanted to like break free of the shackles of the cultural and political climate of the time. Do you know what I mean? So I think it, it, it like a lot of science fiction films, it's kind of fighting a fighting its corner, really yeah. about the contemporary era that it that it that it finds itself in. Um, but I mean, you know, if you look at how the film is shot and the way in which kind of people go in and out of scenes and the 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 the, the, the editing and the lighting, you do go, oh wow, this is this is the this is like a pivotal moment in world cinema, because from this moment people went, oh, we can do so much more with a movie camera, you know. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, what, what when you got to the end of it and you watched it and you could have sort of tried to you know put your thoughts in about the totality of this film together? What what, what would you say about it? Um, I think it's a bit of a jarring watch. I think it's it's a hard sell, but if you kind of forsake that and just kind of let yourself get into the film, you you will enjoy it. I don't think it's a film that. I would adore as much as some some other people like film students mm-hmm. doing their first year at Warwick University might enjoy it, but yeah. you know, it's um, it's okay. Yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's got. Uh, I think it's 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 a very good way to to take the temperature of what was going on in the film world at the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you sort of think about the the battle that Goddard was sort of metaphorically fighting there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I agree. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month looks at a lesser known science fiction film starring Sean Connery as a futuristic sheriff in a western in space. The hidden gem for episode 31 is Outland. So Outland, 1981. This is Sean Connery in sort of transition in, in his career between his kind of Bond stardom and his late career. So for you, mate, you know, obviously you're, a, you're you know, you are Scottish and Sean Connery is kind of a bit of an icon of, of Scotland. Um, but he was had already achieved his kind of national treasure status before you were even born. What, what, where are you on Sean Connery in general as, as, a, as, a, as an actor and as a, as a cultural figure? Well, I think like most famous actors from the 60s think, oh, wow, they're pretty fucking cool back in the day. And then you find out that he beats women and you're like, oh. Yeah, so you have to kind of separate the... Yeah. You watch his films, you have to separate the person from the art. Yeah, so it's a bit a bit of a, a bit mixed feelings towards Sean Connery. He's obviously made some great films and he's, you know, one of Scotland's most famous sons. But yeah, with a, you kind of, with a gasp of breath, you know, you kind of... You say that you enjoy his films. Yeah, and what's your what's your mental image of, of of Sean Connery in terms of the films he's in? I mean, you know, someone my dad's age were, you know, your granddad would look. At his his mental image of Sean Connery is probably like at his sort of mid to late sixties peak as James Bond, right? Or like you know seventies just after. For me, it's you know seeing you know seeing some of those old films, but also the, the slightly older Sean Connery emerge and, and do some interesting stuff in the eighties, but. 
when you when you see if you were to shut your you know your in your mind's eye what, what Sean Connery do you see Highlander Highlander right very good very good um, <laughs> so this is so Sh- Sean Connery here we're talking about um, obviously he was massive as Bond in the sixties and then he had a like uh, a period of like solo stardom do you know what I mean it's like you know Lennon and McCartney leaving the Beatles and going solo in the 70s Sean Connery sort of went solo in the 70s and was a really big actor he, in the 70s he's in films like the Anderson Tapes the man who would be king the first great train robbery where he is the, the leading man he's he's in he was a mainstay anytime they would do a big film with an all-star cast like the first murder on the Orient Express or a bridge too far Sean Connery would be one of the big star names they would get and then it winds down from a bit until the mid-80s. He had that unofficial Bond film in 83, but then it, he comes back and he does Highlander, Name of the Rose, The Untouchables, and late career Sean Connery is kind of born. Do you know what I mean? And he's kind of, he creates this persona where, yeah, he's losing his hair. Yeah, he's kind of old and grey, but he's just got something no one else has got. Listen to that voice, he's cool. He, in, in, you know, 1996 aged, you know, in his 60s, he's doing action films like The Rock and stuff, right? So... But this is an interesting time for him because he's not the megastar Connery from his early career in 1981, and he's not late career Silver Fox Connery either. He's this. The reason this film's a hidden gem is that it's kind of a period of Sean Connery's career that everyone's kind of forgotten about. Um, and so, what did you think of the James Bond? Sorry, of the sorry for James Bond of the Sean Connery that you saw kind of appearing at the start of this film when you look at him and go, "Oh right, that's Sean Connery." It's weird, isn't it? Because I feel like there's like two two halves to Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. Young Sean Connery, who's in James Bond, and then Sean Connery, who's the sweet old man in you know the Last Crusade. Yeah, and so, th- th- this is this is the halftime oranges between is, those two halves. Yeah, it's like career, this yeah. is sort of like ten years before, so he's like he's just about fifty at this point, isn't he? Yep. So he's you know he's middle aged at this point, um, and he's he's quite well built. That's why I thought that's the first thing I took from this. He was in mm-hmm. actually he was in really good shape. Um, he didn't look as in James Bond. He's always looked kind of slim and you know smart whereas this he looked kind of like he put on a bit like a few pounds just to kind of beef up for the role yeah what what i found really interesting about it was that even though i mean this is it's basically a sean connery star vehicle right i know that they didn't make the movie for sean connery but he carries the film they, they came up with a sci-fi setting which we'll talk about the storyline and all of that but they um they've they've cast a big name actor they said right we'll get sean connery because he's a big actor he'll carry the film right it's one of those movies it's a sean connery film but aside from that, it's kind of like Sean Connery said, yeah, I'm playing a guy, he's 50, he's moving from job to job, he's got a wife and a kid who aren't exactly thrilled to be stuck in this kind of shitty situation. And it's, it, I thought it was very much, although you always know it's Sean Connery, he really does kind of immerse himself in this character and this story, do you know what I mean? And it's probably the only time in his career that he can, because in the 70s it's like, look at Sean Connery. And later it's like, oh, look, Sean Connery's still got it. Do you know what I mean? But in this movie, he actually has an opportunity to kind of just really disappear into the film. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. You're right. It's, it, it was it was, an, it was a kind of refreshing kind of role. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm um, not playing endless James Bond roles and then the kind of older general or older man type that he played in his little yeah it was and, and you know and you know they're kind of they've either written the part for him or once they've got sean connery they rewrite it a little bit so that he can kind of raise yeah. an eyebrow at the camera a little bit and say hey look i'm sean connery you know um so go so so the plot in in the future sort of a fair way in the future i think the mining operation on the on io a moon of jupiter 
It's run by one of those interplanetary huge conglomerate companies you get in sci-fi films. Connery is the new marshal who's just started a tour of duty there. Someone's got to keep order in these kind of, you know, working operations where people, you know, work hard and play hard. You know, they're working a tough job in a mining operation and then they're, you know, getting pissed and, 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 and seeing sex workers to, to, to wind down. And someone's got to keep things, you know, keep things in order. A series of gory, unexplained deaths keep happening which no one seems to want the new marshal to investigate. He investigated anyway because, you know, feels like he should. And it turns out someone is giving workers on the facility drugs to make them work faster, but they have horrible side effects, which is leading to these deaths. He seems to be the only one on in the town because it's got this Western inflection to it. He seems to be the only one who doesn't want this covered up. And the bad guys, possibly supported by the company, start to gang up on him. And it, it was kind of, the central idea was to... to play with like western themes in space this is basically a frontier mining town he's the marshal in a you know small town where the bad guys are in control and he's got to face them off alone i think they use high noon as a reference point classic western which has got a lot of the same stuff but also it expands it it gives you the sci-fi setting it's got a procedural crime investigation it's got a bit of a theme of corporate corruption as well i mean did, did the storyline grab you when you sort of read the you know read the, the summary and go oh this will be good did you were you interested in the story that they set out yeah, it was surprisingly, you know, it was It was a story that, you know, we'd sort of seen it before, but I don't think we'd ever seen Sean Connery do it, Yeah, yeah if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It was like the forgotten part of his career where he just did a film that you, you didn't expect him to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah. So, by, by way of being a hidden gem, I mean, the film did okay at the box office. It wasn't a flop. It was like a modest hit. Uh, no film of Sean Connery is ever completely hidden. Um, but it wasn't, you know, the biggest films of 1981 and things like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the year that this was, right? Um, and it was, it kind of had a second life like a lot of films did in the 80s in um, home video. And that's where I watched it. This is a film that we rented a fair few times and eventually we recorded off the telly because my mum and dad were big fans of it as well. Yeah. Um, it was directed by a guy called Peter Hyams. He's a very solid, like, journeyman director. He's done things like 2010, the sequel to 2001. Capricorn One, which you talked about in the conspiracy thread. Running Scared, which is a really underrated um, buddy cop movie. He's basically a specialist in hidden gems. He's one of these directors where you go, oh yeah, he was quite good. And and he's, you look at his list of films, and, and if you're of that era when they came out, you go, oh, I remember that film. That was pretty good, that was. Do you know what I mean? He's that yeah. guy. And they, it's it was at a reasonable budget for the time, something like $18, $20 million, which is a fair bit of money in 1981. It's a comparable budget to Blowout, which we talked about, in, it came out this year. Um, and they're quite keen to set out the scale of the mining facility, build the world. Um, you can tell it's post-alien because space is like a place to live and work. You know, it's kind of blue collar. It's kind of, you know, you know, scorched metal because people work there with welding materials and, and hang out in, you know, very realistic looking kind of bunks and rooms. Do you know what I mean? It's not... They don't have like the cold aesthetic of two thousand and one. Do you know what I mean? Did you like? Did you like the sci-fi world that they built? The industrial um, environment. Yeah, I think that for me was a sort of weak point. I, I think I've just kind of seen that kind of thing before. Yeah, and you know, it felt you know very similar to. I don't know why, but it reminded me of that awful Judge Dredd film with Sylvester Stallone. All right. Which is things I didn't want to be to be reminded of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's 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 kind of a standard sci-fi environment. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's like you could almost pick it out of a catalogue. But it does a nice job of it. I thought it was a very realistic picture of like an industrial environment. Do you know what I mean? Um, but again, 
this is this is a movie for sci-fi fans. Do you know what I mean? This film doesn't cross over like Blade Runner does. This is like if you like sci-fi movies, this has one of those sci-fi settings which is standard and it and it delivers it. Some interesting trivia about the special effects. Um, this uh, let me make sure that I've got this. Um, it was called InnoVision, I think it was called, and this was um, this is pre CGI, but they wanted to find a way to make to make sci-fi films with good sets with something other than like models filmed in close-up. Do you know what I mean? And InnoVision was basically like the version of green screen that you could have at the time. Because what you could do is you could have someone walking into a, a set with like some of the basic stuff on it. And while the, the director is watching on, on the monitor, you can have, uh, you can insert big scale, impressive looking effects like flying spaceships, whatever you like. So a lot of those, a lot of those sets you're seeing, they're not models. Actually, Sean Connery is walking on on a screen, and they're inserting the world around him. It's the same thing they used about ten years later in um, uh, the Fugitive, where the train hits the um, uh, the bus. That's not CGI. They've basically just got um, uh, Harrison Ford on the set diving out of the way, and it and the train hits the truck. It's like. It's like live CGI for the director to watch while he's doing it, and they can edit it and, and do another take until it looks right. So yeah. it's, it's an interesting sort of innovation in special effects. But on the whole, it's like a police procedural. Um, uh, you know, the did you? I mean, I because I'm from this era. I enjoyed the kind of character actors that you had. I felt like they 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 populated the world with some interesting character actors. Did you like? Did you like the people in the world that they were sort of walking around in it? Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think you know what you're getting with this film. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's not like a rich, you know, saga of films where there's this is film one of eight. It establishes what it is very quickly and just kind of gets down to business. Yeah, it's a police procedural. There's a bit of a Western feel. It does all the fundamentals well. It's quite tough. Doesn't hold back on the violence, but basically it gives you a story. It gives you it gives you a familiar story in a familiar setting, but it does it well. It's like. This guy is on his own. He's not perhaps been like the world's kind of leading law enforcement officer, but he's decided this time he's not going to fuck about. Do you know what I mean? But he's on his own and he's got to face him. And it's almost like he's like stubbornly refusing, and he might not even be sure why he's stubbornly refusing, but he's refusing to roll over even though the odds are stacked against him. And it builds this suspenseful climax. I liked the I liked the bit where the the corrupt person on the on the uh, on the um, on the mining frontier, you know, facility. I won't say who it is. You can watch the movie, and, and you know, I don't want to spoil it, 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 its revelations. Um, calls has basically called in, send some henchmen. We're going to wipe this guy out. And because it takes like a week or five days or whatever for the ship to arrive, the clock is counting down. And when that shuttle arrives, it's going to open up, and a bunch of people are going to kill Sean Connery. And as he's trying to work out what he's going to do about this while he's building his case, you see the clock counting down to them arriving. I thought that built a nice bit of suspense. Um, but like you say, mate, it, it's not. It, it's it's good standard solid sci-fi. It's not. It doesn't revolutionise the genre or pose huge questions for humanity like Blade Runner. It's just good solid, decent characters, decent script. It's um, it's got a couple of plot holes and action cliches. Do you know what I mean? It, it's basically it's there to kind of, it's there to kind of really kind of give Sean Connery an opportunity to play this kind of slightly tired character who's just making his making his last stand. You know. But I enjoyed the characters. I like the sort of buddy relationship with uh, Sean Connery and the Doctor, played by Francis Sternhagen. Um, I think, for me, I mean, you can give me your verdict, mate. For me, 
this is a piece of solid sci-fi that you'll really enjoy if you like sci-fi. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I think if it's on the TV and you you're free for a couple of hours, just stick it on. Yeah, yeah, I think it. I think it. It does. It does its job as as a piece of sci-fi. It's not going to convert someone who doesn't like sci-fi. Do you know what I mean? Unless yeah. unless maybe they're a huge Connery fan, and you say, you know what? There's this period of Sean Connery you've never seen. Watch this Sean Connery. I think that that maybe it's interesting for that as well. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films the top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at the intriguing prospect of a hugely ambitious sci-fi film by a 21st century auteur, adapting a classic novel by Arthur C. Clarke. The one that got away for episode 31 is David Fincher's Rendezvous with Rama. So, James, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, you're a fan. You're you're aware of his work. Um, I don't know why, but I feel like I've heard the name about four thousand times on this podcast. Uh, um, I feel like he's been mentioned a bit. Uh, yeah, two thousand and one. He wrote. He wrote two thousand and one. That's the one. Yeah, that's why I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's he's seen as one of the absolute kind of like big dogs of you know sci-fi when it turned into you know a, a massive genre. There's him. There's Isaac Asimov. Um, you know, a bit of Ray Bradbury from about that period, but he's like one of the absolute, absolute big names. And 2001 A Space Odyssey is a bit of an unusual one because he was working on a novel of 2001, but at the same time, it wasn't that he wrote the novel and uh, Kubrick said, oh, I'll, write, I'll make a film of that novel. Kubrick and Clark got together to do 2001 and they sort of agreed, Kubrick's going to go make a movie of this story and obviously Clark's going to go write a, a novel of this story and they might not be the same thing. So you didn't have any of the usual stuff where you go, oh, he's written this great novel. How do I put all of this on film? Do you know what I mean? They basically agreed what the story was and Kubrick went with it and did a movie and Arthur C. Clarke went and did it with a novel and everyone went, oh, well, that's, that's just going to be different. Do you know what I mean? This one, Rendezvous with Rama comes out in 1973. Arthur C. Clarke by now is like a hugely celebrated author because his, his books are very successful and 2001 has come out. He writes this novel, Rendezvous with Rama. It wins all the fucking prizes, the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, the whatever award. It's seen as an absolute classic of sci-fi, very much in the genre of sci-fi. It's not like, uh, you know, someone like William Gibson, who was seen as someone that, you know, loved by sci-fi fans, but also people who just like the way he writes. It's, he's very much a sci-fi guy. Um, but this is one of the big, the big sci-fi stories that someone somewhere is eventually going to try and make into a movie, right? Um and what it concerns, it's like hard science fiction. It is very, you know, it, it's it's entirely about creating a futuristic world in which things happen in space and you, you understand the technology, you understand what it means for humanity to be at this new stage. It's, you know, it's not literary. Um, and what it's about, it's about... Um, Arthur C. Clarke predicted something that actually happened, right? Which is that meteorites would start getting a bit near the earth and people would get nervous and as technology developed they would develop early warning systems to monitor meteorite activity in the solar system just in case they need to do something about something that's coming to hit the earth and that agency now exists and if you saw in the news lately someone actually sent a space probe out and landed it on a meteor just to prove that we could that we could land something on a meteor and blow it up if it ever came to that so Arthur C. Clarke predicted it and now it exists and, and this goes one step further and goes, about 200 years in the future, uh, 
that early warning system is set up and it detects something coming, something huge, right? But it's not a meteorite. It turns out it's a spaceship. They christen it Rama because uh, something to do with Rama, the Hindu, the Hindu god, um, because they always give these things names, right? But it's a massive cylinder rotating on its central axis. It's so big, it's about 50 kilometers long and about 20 kilometers wide. It's so big, it's, it's got a frozen sea in the middle of it as if maybe that was the water supply of the ship. And it's impossible to tell how long it's actually been drifting through space. Everyone inside might be dead. And it's about the mission of a group of humans uh, in this future world to go and intercept the ship and either see who's in it and, and, and deal with them, encounter intelligent life, or just see what's going on with the ship and what happened and what it means for Earth that now we've seen some intelligent life approaching us. And it's about the the challenges of doing that in space. It's about the struggles and it's about the weird, strange things that they find in the spaceship and how it's going to change humanity forever now that they've encountered intelligent life. It's also about um, humankind has populated all the planets of the solar system, like from Mercury out to like how safely to even that's not a planet. And it's like a UN of planets, so they're not all agreed. And at one point, the story gets pretty intense because one of the planets says, I'm worried about the ship. I think it's a threat. And they launch a nuclear strike on the ship and all the astronauts are still on the ship and they have to do something about the fact that nuclear missiles are heading towards them. So it's that kind of movie. And it probably couldn't have been done until the special effects caught up. Uh, and in and in the 21st century, that's when we start to do a movie. Would this be, I mean, does this... Does this ring any bells with you as a storyline? Because obviously a, bit, a big a big book like this gets used by other directors. But does that, that storyline ring any bells for you? Does it remind you of other films that have been made, mate? Um, a few, but I what one did that bring to mind for you? Um, there's a little bit of like Event Horizon because there's a, a, an abandoned yeah. ship on there. There's also a bit of, of Alien because in Alien they, they find a say, ship. It, feel, it feels very alien-y. <laughs> a long distance ship. It doesn't. The plot doesn't go down that route, by the way. Um, the um, I thought things like Event uh, Interstellar and Sunshine, where it's like the realistic world of trying to live and work in space, and and like the um, you know what you might find out there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. Uh, what happened was, although we talk about this as David Finch's rendezvous with Roman, because he's a director who was going to make it. The, the driving force in this was Morgan Freeman. Okay. He he was a fan of this book and he just absolutely desperately wanted to make this movie. So he was the one pushing for it to happen. He was the one kind of banging the drum going, I want to make this film. Obviously, Morgan Freeman and David Fincher worked together on uh, uh, Seven. So he said, well, let's get Fincher to make the film. And David Fincher actually fancied doing it as well. I mean, it's one of those things where, you remember we did our David Fincher special episode and it was a... Uh, uh, he was fascinated by films that could build a whole world for the audience. And this is yeah. basically a world-building film. It's also an opportunity for him to make a science fiction film on his terms rather than what, what happened to him on Alien 3 kind of thing, right? Um, so this movie, the storyline I just described, David Fincher directing it, Morgan Freeman starring. You in? You watching that if that's if that's announced as, as coming out? Yeah, of course. What what do you think? What do you think David Fincher would want to bring to a film like this? No, you know, looking at his films and knowing what he what he does with things. Um, I don't know because he's done so many different films. Like when I think of David Fincher, I think more of films like Gone Girl and Fight yeah. Club. You know, yeah. these kind of dark, you know, 
realistic films, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, these films that focus on you know a lot of mental illness. That's like a recurring theme in these David Fincher films. So I don't know what he would do with something like this. Um, it's what makes me it, what makes me curious about his his like attempt at Alien Three and what that could have looked like if he was allowed to do it properly and yeah. something like this. I'm just not entirely sure what he would do with it. You see, for me, I think it would be. He'd, he'd want to build that ship. That ship sounds fascinating, right? Because I haven't gone yeah. further. In, when you when you, you you can read the book, the book's sort of you know the you know you can get it on Kindle or whatever, and it's a, it's a good book. It's very sci-fi. It's not really very character-driven. It's all about the world that, that that's happening there. But it's um they get into this ship and it's like they don't know if these aliens are long dead. They don't know if this is like being sent out as a probe and the aliens will follow. Um, there is activity on the ship, and you have to find out what that what that is and who that is. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's a lot about the difficulties and struggles in space, but its focus is on what humans do when they encounter this alien thing. So I think maybe David Fincher would a visually want to build this because you remember we talked about he was so fascinated by the idea of making a train out of plywood for um, uh, for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and then blowing it up. And as a kid, when he watched that, that looked like they'd blown up a real train, right? So for him, that's always like, I want to recreate this. The way he, although it's not a sci-fi film, he was able to recreate the whole world of 30s, 40s Hollywood in um, in, in, in Mank. So part of it for him is recreating this world and recreating that ship. But I think what would attract him to this story is, this is about what humans do to something they encounter and to each other and how they conflict with each other when they are presented with something that's going to change course of human history forever so i think he would he would focus on what what are these people going to do how are they going to kind of you know are they going to unravel are they going to turn you know are they going to turn into like it's a threat we must destroy it are they going to turn into we are you know this is new we must study it i think he's going to i think he's going to say what happens when you drag when you drag people to the edge of this do you know what i mean and make them look at something which is going to change them forever how do they react and put his little microscope on them i think that's what fincher would do I think that's that's that would be his interest in the story. Yeah, I think he would obviously give it a good go, and he's very he's a very fastidious director, David Fincher. So I think it would be a very polished film if he was allowed to do it. Yeah, um, the way he wanted to. Yeah, so I mean, the story of it not happening is it was going to cost a lot of money. I think Morgan Freeman gave a number of interviews over the years for about ten years, right, saying um, we just can't get the script right. Um, so Fincher was big. I mean, he got he got decent amounts of money for some of his films. He got a lot of money to make Girl Dragon Tattoo. He, you know, Morgan Freeman was a really big name. But your your problem is turning a novel into a film is not easy. What do you leave out? Is what makes the film a compelling novel? What's going to make it into a compelling film? Do you know what I mean? And I think some of the this is really fascinating. They've discovered this new spaceship. Let's explore it. I don't think you could do too much of that in a movie because people would go, "Well, that was nice. We're exploring a spaceship. What now?" I think they would have to amp up the human conflict. The whole bit where a nuclear strike is being is being um, uh, uh, launched at the uh, at the ship and, and how and what and what they do about that. I think that that's going to be where they kind of they would build that. They'd have to do more with that. Um, there are some bits where you know the humans trying to you know navigate this massive and spaceship and, and, and get through these inaccessible areas of it. You know. Uh, you know, are they going to die? Are they going to survive it? That that you know, there's obviously a lot of drama around that. But I think cracking the story were, was the challenge, and it never quite worked out. 
And I think in, in the 2010s, I think maybe Morgan Freeman went, oh, well, I've tried for 10 years. I'm not sure I can, I can still do this. And, and Fincher pulled out. Fincher pulled out. I think he went, look, I, I don't think this is going to happen. He got a little bit sick of like dealing with studios. And I think in his mind, he would have gone, this is going to be a $150 million film. I'm never. I, I hate. No one's going to let me do this. I hate. De- I hate dealing with the studio. I don't want to do it. I reckon he might do it now if Netflix gave him the money. Do you know what I mean? Um, but uh, and the other problem you've got is that Arthur C. Clarke is a very celebrated author, but this book is fifty years old. This book has never been turned into a franchise where you've got like millions and millions of fans. It's not like Marvel. It's not like DC. It's not like any of these other films where you go, you've got a ready-made audience who are going to go and watch this. It's not like Harry Potter, where it's like one of the best-selling books of all time, and you know that if you make the film, people are going to watch it. So there was a risk with this movie. You could spend $150 million, and a number of people like my age who remember the book go, yeah, I'll watch that. I'll watch the next David Fincher film, but are you getting enough people for this to make $400 million and therefore make its money back? I think that's why they struggled a little bit. Um what's fascinating about this is that um, Arthur C. Clarke didn't just predict that this agency would be set up to detect objects hurtling towards Earth in case they're dangerous. He actually, um, the first interstellar object has been detected in the solar system. I don't know if you heard about this. Okay. It's called, I don't actually know how you pronounce this, Umumua. It's an interstellar object which passed through the solar system. It's the first thing we've ever detected passing through. It was detected in 2017. It, it never got close to Earth in about um, 20, 33 million kilometers, and it was already heading away from the sun at that time. Um, but it was between 100 and 100 meters long. It's an interstellar object. As from what they can see, it's probably a remnant of a disintegrated um, rogue comet, but something from another solar system passed through ours. Uh, and now we have the equipment to, to watch it happening. So maybe in 100 years, we'll see something like Rama actually happen. Okay. So the, the, the fascination of this is, wow, Arthur C. Clarke knew, he knew the science community. He was really good at writing about science and stuff he predicted tended to come true. I just don't know if that's going to turn into a blockbuster. But the twist to this tale, right, is that it is now on the slate to get made. And it's going to be made by Denny Villeneuve, as one of our listeners pointed out. When he's done Dune Part 2, he's going to do this. Wow. Okay. And you see, I like David Fincher and I'd love to see what he would do with a big ambitious sci-fi film. However, if you wanted me to, um, you know, if, if movies are a blackjack table and you want me to put my chips down either on red or black, yeah, and red is David Fincher and black is Denny Villeneuve, which of those two is going to actually successfully make this movie? I'd put my chips on Villeneuve. Because he seems to be the go-to guy for challenging sci-fi projects, especially ones where people have tried and failed to make this novel before Denny do you think you can do it he's the one who gets in and does it he seems to have a knack for adapting sci-fi stories from from uh from challenging sources so I mean are you up for a Denny Villeneuve version of this story um yeah but I don't see Denny Villeneuve doing other things yeah I feel like he's just being relied on to make all the sci-fi films now isn't he yeah I know what you mean because he did Sicario he did Prisoners he's done other stuff and now it's kind of like Denny here's a ton of money do this other thing that we need you to do yeah because nobody else can I mean maybe he's up for it I mean he's done Arrival Blade Runner 2049 and the Dune stuff maybe he's into it but I never thought he would turn into just a sci-fi specialist it's interesting isn't it um 
Yeah, it's weird that if you were to watch Sicario and um, Prisoners and then you would go, yeah, this guy's going to make June. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Uh, sometimes people's careers evolve by accident. Denny Villeneuve at the moment seems to like... He does the next thing that he finds interesting rather than this is this is what Denny Villeneuve is trying to, to do with his films. I might be being a bit harsh on him. He might, he might in an interview, say these are my themes, but he kind of... He goes, you know, film to film and goes, what do I want to do now? And in, at the moment, it's sci-fi movies. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, if you look at what he did with June, he'd get the visuals right. He, he seems to know how to adapt to story. So, and I'm certainly going to I'm certainly gonna watch that. Uh, but as you say, I, I wonder if, if Villeneuve is, um, you know, is he, is he typecasting himself, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. It's weird when directors get typecast. Yeah. It's not something you normally expect to happen. Um, but yeah, so that's that's the the one that got away. It's an interesting one. The David Fincher version of this film isn't going to happen, but by all accounts, the Denny Villeneuve version of it is. So watch this space. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often, this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake, which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again, the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month, we continue our science fiction theme with a 21st century remake of a classic 50s flying saucer film in which an alien comes to warn Earth against its own path of self-destruction. The remake Hate Watch for episode 31 is The Day the Earth Stood Still. We are also going to do something which James uh, came up with as a new additional sort of companion feature to the remake Hate Watch, which is a remake restoration. So once we've had a little chat about Day the Earth Stood Still, we're going to talk about a science fiction film that actually could do with being remade um, to make it better. Uh, And we'll unveil that later. Uh, so, James, Day the Earth Stood Still. Are you aware of the 1951 original? Uh, no, but I had to read up on it, obviously, <clears throat> for doing the Day the Earth Stood Still remake. Yeah. And what did you find out? Um, it seems like it's in the similar ilk of like, the original War of the Will- well, War of the World. War of the World. Yeah. You know, one of those ones that's, you know, a classic from back in the day. And they've just gone, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll remake that. Um, it's it's much imitated even before there was a remake. Um, it's you know nineteen fifty one is like one of the first films of this kind. There were a lot of these UFO type films in the fifties. This was one of the first ones. But if you've seen, there was that one. What's the name of that? Uh, uh, Monsters versus Aliens. Yeah. Uh, and also um, the Iron Giant, and I mean, not just animated films, but a lot of films. The idea that there's this new phenomenon—it's probably from outer space—and uh, they just surround it with tanks, and 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 there's lots of nervous soldiers with itchy trigger fingers surrounding this uh, this thing, and you have this tense standoff. What's going to happen next? Day the Earth stood still. Fucking invented that. Do you know what I mean? The, the idea of like the the UFO looking the shape that it is, the kind of style, everything else. This is like an absolute pioneering film. So imitated that I think if you were to watch it, you would every single aspect of it you would you would think was familiar because it had been done in other films that you had seen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I follow. And uh, in terms of special effects, I think it made the best use of what was available at the time. It had a Bernard Herrmann soundtrack, the guy who was a, a frequent Hitchcock collaborator. So it creates that classic eerie sci-fi music again. At the time, that would have been brilliant. Now you go, I've seen that on a Saturday Night Live sketch. Do you know what I mean? 
but it's got the scene it's got everything it's got these classic scenes of like these a montage of foreign people reporting news around the world of the ufo arriving it's yeah. like you've got the british guy the the, the japanese newsreader the uh, whoever newsreader all reporting on what's happening um so it it follows this character who's taken on human form <clears throat> to come and warn earth about a you know, this is impending disaster. You're, you know, you've built these nuclear weapons. You're, you're going to destroy yourselves, and, and the, the, the weapons that you're creating are getting to the point where it can actually damage other worlds. You need to stop this, or it's going to end badly for you. And uh, in that, he he walks around and he follows. You know, he, he spends time with human beings and learns to understand them a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's still it's a warning. It's a warning to say you got to watch out and. What's interesting is that the alien is called Klaatu in, in both films is his real name. He go he goes undercover and hangs out with humans in the first film and his alias is Carpenter. And people generally feel that's a nod to Jesus who was a carpenter and he's a very Christ-like figure. So that's what that is. It's a very, like a Christ-like alien, benevolent, but warning, saying, guys, you're going to destroy yourselves, stop it, sort of thing. Yeah? Yeah. The new version. Um, what? What? what how, how would you summarize the, what the new version does with that storyline? What kind of what kind of messages in the new version? Um, I don't know. I didn't really understand this new one. It was it was shit. Yeah. But you were right in saying that it's like for like because I was trying to think right. What have you done differently then? The the only thing they've done differently really is the um, instead of Cold War and nuclear destruction, it's modern day climate catastrophe. And I think that's, um, it's, basically this falls into a lot of the bad remake traps. Basically what they've done is, they've kind of got a reason to remake it, sort of, to say, well actually, we don't have a nuclear war threat anymore, hopefully, but we do have a climate threat, so why don't we make a movie with that being the threat? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, uh, it's... um, but aside from that, they've then fallen into the trap of, well, we're going to do big budget. We're going to show lots of like special effects of aliens and spaceships. But that makes the film cost $100 million. And if it's going to be $100 million, it's got to be a blockbuster. So we've got to have big action sequences and explosions, which aren't in the first film because they didn't have to be. They were making a different kind of movie. Do you know what I mean? And what happens is it takes a, a storyline, which is so familiar now anyway, and transplants it into something really big, loud and dumb. Do you know what I mean? He's supposed to be this enlightened, wise alien here to warn us against, against death and destruction of the environment, and the arrival of his spaceship wipes out half the city. It's like, uh? yeah. It's just because they needed a big kind of action set piece, do you know what I mean? And that desire to have action scenes and explosions completely overrides the story. The story, though, is very much the original one. He is, he arrives, he gets knocked out, he is, you know, he's briefly in custody of, like, medical, military personnel. He then puts on a suit and hides with humans, learns a bit about humans, and then kind of there's a warning at the end about don't destroy the environment. That's basically it, right? Pretty much. Um, what's inter- what I found interesting about this is not that the film was interesting, is that this the other the other pitfall you get of remakes is that they they sometimes try and introduce new stuff to kind of justify why they're doing a remake. And what happens is you go, first of all, you think you should have done that instead of remaking the old story. Do you know what I mean? And it doesn't. The story that you try and introduce is held back because you can't fully develop that story because you've stopped, got to stop and do all the old plot points of the original film. Do you know what I mean? So there was a, a few like green shoots of what might have been an interesting story to do something different. Do you know where, the, where, where he talks to James Hong in the cafe, 
and he's a fellow alien who's been here for decades studying us and he's fallen in love with the place. Yeah. And there are attempts to preserve um, species because humans are destroying them. It's like, I wanted to see a film about that. I don't want to remake A Day the Earth Stood Still that kind of takes these old, old storylines that are totally cliched now. Do that. Do a completely new film about aliens are coming in to save, to save um, species and, and humans are probably going to be wiped out because there's 7 billion of us who gives a shit about us, but they do give a shit about the Siberian tiger. Do you know what I mean? That's more of a movie, but it, it it's completely underdeveloped. It's just like a plot point and then we get back to the big stupid explosions, you know? Um, yeah. It w- Keanu. We have to talk about Keanu. Yeah. I know he's had a bit of a renaissance with this John Wick stuff, but he's not very good in John Wick. See, well, let's let's be let's everyone listening and out yourself. Let's be honest. John Wick is fun because Keanu Reeves doesn't say a lot. He just fucking punches and shoots and stabs. Here's here's what I think about Keanu Reeves. I like him personally. I've seen him in interviews, and he sounds like an excellent bloke. I think he'd be really good to hang out with. The list of films he's done that I like is pretty long. Do you know what I mean? It's like I like that Keanu Reeves film. I like that Keanu Reeves film. I like that Keanu Reeves film. Those films, he sort of he somehow manages to do films that are good, even though he himself is not like the best actor. But when a film depends on him interpreting a character and delivering a performance and what and his acting skills, you're on shaky ground, aren't you? And yeah. he's completely miscast as this character. He just doesn't. It's all the more frustrating because actually, although he wasn't a big enough name to lead a big movie at that time, you've got John Hamm in a supporting role and I've gone, him, him, he's the guy who should play this character. Do you know what I mean? But he's, in, he's doing something yeah. else in the movie. It's, I mean, I, I, it's always nice to see James Hong. Uh, Jennifer Connelly's perfectly decent in the movie. Um, Jaden Smith is well cast as an annoying little shit who provides clear evidence that the human race is doomed. But it's just, it's just lazy writing, plot holes, cliches, you know, it 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 for about five minutes they had an idea that let's let's do this and let's make this into a movie that kind of gives a warning about the environment and then in the end it's just like exploding this you know levitating that and then at the end you just kind of you just shrug your shoulders at the end don't you? Yeah, it, yeah. It was like a fart. It was just it just didn't have any fucking substance to it. It was just there. It's it just was, uh, it shit. They, they were onto a loser because people have dipped into the well of the classic 50s sci-fi movie and made new and original stories. John Carpenter's Starman, do you know what I mean? That which which this manages to look like a shit version of Starman as well as a shit version of the Day of the Earth Stood Still. People have gone back to that idea of aliens of whether nice aliens or nasty aliens or different kinds of aliens landing and they've just gone those are the tropes, do you know what I mean? Those are the original tropes. Let's do our own thing with them turn them upside down, do them differently, whatever it is, to just remake a film that is so... I mean, one of these days we will do a remake, Hate Watch, of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version, one of the other absolutely classic 50s films. So it's not unknown that people will actually do a remake of those classic 50s sci-fi, but this just didn't have enough thought. And at the end of the day, the bit that was interesting about the film isn't the original storyline. So it's just, it's kind of a, it's just kind of a classic, that was never going to work, was it? Yeah, I don't know why they bothered because I doubt there was much interest in going to see this film. You yeah. know, you know when they do a remake of something and you know it's going to make mm-hmm. going to make money like Halloween. Yeah, but no idea what possessed them. No, no idea at all. 
So that's our remake hate watch. I think this is a bit of a standard one. But if you remember, if you listened to our um, our recent Second Chance Cinema, and uh, James mentioned this when we were talking to Jamie Chambers in our special episode, we thought it would be interesting from time to time when we have one, when we have like something that fits kind of the the, the, the features of the episode, to do what we call a remake restoration, where we actually say there's a movie that deserves a remake because it had the potential to be good and and wasn't and how we think we could do it differently to make it better. And we have a nomination for that this uh, this month, which is iRobot, science fiction film from about 2004. So, James, your thoughts on iRobot, the, the film that actually came out with Will Smith? Yeah, um, I still quite enjoy this film, but I think, as with a lot of Will Smith films that are good ideas, they seem to run out of steam about an hour of the way in. And it's the same with, um, what was the other one he did? I Am Legend. Yes. Absolutely phenomenal idea for a film, and it does really well until you get towards the end and you're like, nah, that wasn't the way to do it. It, it. And it's because they sort of, whether it's because of the finances involved in making a film this big or whether it's because of the people who are involved in making them, they take something that's potentially really thought-provoking and they just turn it into like quite a humdrum, big-budget blockbuster. And, and, and in the end, they squander a really good idea on something that doesn't really do anything new, is what I thought about iRobot. There's some very interesting ideas that just don't go anywhere. Yeah. Interesting, you should say, um, iRobot uh, and uh, I Am Legend. There is a common denominator to those two films. Uh, the writer slash producer, Akiva Goldsman. Does that name ring a bell? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> He wrote the script or wrote, was a co-writer on um, A Beautiful Mind. Oh, yes. The uh, Russell Crowe yeah. maths one. Yeah. Now, do you like that film? Do you like uh, Beautiful Mind? It's all right. It's, it's meh. Yeah. It's okay. So, I mean, I'm the same. I think Beautiful Mind is good. It's, it's got some good stuff in it. Uh, madly enough, that won the Oscar for Best Picture that year. Beautiful Mind. Did it? Yeah. Wow. And Akiva Goldsman won the Oscar for Best uh, Screenplay. Best Adapted Screenplay. Okay, right. So it's kind of a massively kind of good film, but Best Picture of the Year? Best Director, Ron Howard? What else came out that year? Um, uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, Black Hawk Down, um, Monsters, Inc., uh, Training Day. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of good movies came out that year. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not, it's not the, it's not the strongest year ever, but I mean, Will Smith was Ali. Uh, you know, Gosford Park came out, which, if you like that sort of thing, was very, very good. You know, Amelie, you know, Memento, um, and they, they basically went for one of these big kind of mainstream. Uh, Russell Crowe is always good. Plays a real life character with some sort of condition. Blah blah blah. It's just. It's a very predictable kind of identikit Oscar movie, right? Anyway, Akiva Goldsman like can basically write his own ticket because he's won, he's made a hit movie, then or won an Oscar for it. And oddly enough, because the one thing about um, uh, A Beautiful Mind is it's not genre; it's not like sci-fi or action or superhero or anything else. He proceeds to go and make uh, movies in like sci-fi and other genres. He is responsible for the scripts for um, Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. And he's also okay. responsible for the scripts for iRobot and um, uh, I Am Legend. And he has got this knack for taking genre material and making it not very good. Oh, dear. 
So there's he's that, an Oscar winner. Yeah, but, but he's, 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 he's an Oscar winner. It's a little bit overrated to have won an Oscar. And secondly, he didn't he didn't win an Oscar for this. He didn't win win an Oscar for making these kinds of movies. So what he's done is he's just taken something and gone, oh yeah, do that, just blah blah blah. And the, the problem with with iRobot is that it's just really quite bleh. And it's based on some classic Isaac Asimov stories that it completely it uses some of them and then completely forgets them. The the the, the, the three laws of robotics are like a an absolute staple of classic sci-fi it's like a robot must not uh harm or allow to be harmed a human um they but they at the same time they are allowed to kind of you know defend their own existence and the conflict between those two things given the way robots get used by humans creates some interesting stories and dilemmas this kind of there's bits where the, where the robots are just chasing down like will smith and obviously trying to hurt him it's like well you just you just why make a movie based on 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 ideas that you've completely jettisoned? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, uh, that, isn't that a mixed bag? <laughs> yeah, it is a very mixed. I mean, see, the problem is you you you're always going to have to do a relatively loose adaptation of the stories because iRobot is actually while it's it was released as a book, it's actually a collection of short stories on a, on a combined theme, similar to something by Ray Bradbury called The Illustrated Man, where each story is about robots and tells you something else about robots, but it's not one big plot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, what Asimov did was he did go on and do other like novels about robots, like Robots of Dawn and Caves of Steel. So iRobot is kind of like the iconic name of the type of, of you know of, of the original books. So they were probably going to have to freely adapt various storylines, but there were like bigger, longer storylines of Asimov about robots. Um, robots of Dawn features a robot being destroyed as part of an industrial espionage plot. Um, there are storylines in which robots are allowed to be used on other planets, but not on Earth because there's prejudice against robots. There's a central character who is a cop who investigates robot activity, which they kind of turned Will Smith sort of into. But I think there's a really interesting Cage of Steel is about like everywhere in, in the UK is turned into dome cities and robots are like are essential to people kind of surviving in this new environment. And, and it's robots being compromised by what humans are asking them to do, not just part of a traditional kind of evil plot where robots are kind of like the disposable CGI enemy for Will Smith to fight in various kind of traditional action set pieces. You know, you get anti-robot prejudice, but you get robots acting in strange ways because they're being forced to do things that don't work for them. It's like... They just they should have gone back to the original storyline and done a little bit more, but they also needed a, a writer and a director. I mean, Alex Proyas has done some good stuff, but they needed a, they needed a vision. They needed to build a world. I like the idea of the Caves of Steel, the idea of domed cities. It's actually something that you haven't seen before. Because basically, iRobot, it's just a, a cheap knockoff of Minority Report. Do you know what I mean? The cars, the buildings. It's just like someone with a CGI computer has watched a few other sci-fi films and gone, there you go. Do you know what I mean? There's no interesting world that they've built, you know? Yeah. Because I actually, I somewhat enjoyed the way they set up iRobot, but it felt a lot like Minority Report. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's, it's, that's it. It's a fascinating setup, but where you see where the story goes, you go, huh, seen that, huh, you know? Yeah. They... They just needed someone to have the guts to actually do something with it, but you also needed a writer and you know and, and people who were going to turn the film into something with some genuine interest to it. Um, you do have you do have a, a problem though because iRobot the the first iRobot stories came out in like maybe the fifties. I think he wrote some of those stories in the forties, and the film industry is full of people who read sci-fi stories as kids and loved them and used them as inspiration for their films, right? 
So Blade yeah. Runner talks about the ethics of like creating essentially androids and, 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 and their humanity, right? And that I know that's based on another sci-fi book, but Philip K. Dick was writing his books in the 60s and 70s after Asimov. When, like, iRobot is a, is a big well that all, like, so many people have gone to for their own storylines, so you'd have to be very, very careful to create a new story out of it. But that's the one thing that iRobot does not do, is there's absolutely nothing new in the story that they eventually release, instead of some really, really interesting stuff. There's one, in the original kind of iRobot stories, there's one where... Um, the again, because you've got a because you've got AI, the the Haley Joel Osment film, it kind of got used for that. But the idea that this this robot is um, the only companion for this kind of maybe autistic child, and the husband and wife are kind of arguing because the wife hates the robot, doesn't like the idea of it. The husband realizes that that's the only thing keeping their kid going, and he has to find a way to kind of make the wife see that this robot is actually someone that they should keep in their family because for the sake of the kid, and she's got to get over her fear of this kind of non-human thing playing with her kid. Do you know what I mean? There's some interesting story dilemmas that they could have done more with. Um, but they just didn't do it. I, I mean, I think some. So I think someone should have gone back to use some of the interesting storylines and use some of the, the structure of one or two of the novels that, that Asimov made. And you could have actually had a, an absolute classic. And, you know, for example, though, you know, we've talked in our previous one about they're going to make Rendezvous with Rama, which is another milestone of sci-fi. Imagine someone doing a proper movie about one of the milestones of science fiction. If you're a science fiction movie fan, that's quite exciting, you know? And iRobot was disappointing because it was just another movie. Yeah. It wasn't it, bad. It was. I've got it, it yeah. I've got it on Blu-ray. It's quite a watchable film, but it's just it's just nothing it's just nothing striking. There's nothing really you know, it, it, it's too reminiscent of too many other films. Any other thoughts about how you could make iRobot work? I would change the lead. Um, I think it was just getting a bit tired of just the same Will Smith thing. Um, yeah. I would polish up the robot. CGI would obviously allow that now to make it a little, more, a little bit more kind of polished and everything look, look, look a little bit less generated in the computer. But Yeah. Um, you can do so much more with motion capture now, can't you? Yeah, so... If you look at... Um, What's the name? Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina. You know, the things yeah. that you could do. And that's not even, that was not an expensive film. Do you know what I mean? But they were just able to do some very clever things with CGI uh, and, and an actor to, to do some really good stuff, right? Yeah, no. Um, and yeah, try and be a bit more, bit truer to the story as opposed to whatever that mess was in 2004. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a, trick, it's a tricky adaptation, but you know, Let's not get Denny Villeneuve to do it though, because he's already too oh, busy with sci-fi. Have a backlog, yeah. Got too many sci-fi films to do already. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now. We hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which continues this month's overall theme and looks at how science fiction films have fared in predicting the future. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. Podcast is edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side.